Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. All right, now the test here for the moment. When I said Rock of Ages, how many of you heard Def Leppard? Okay, don't answer that. All right, that'll define who you are. Um, this song was written in the 1700s, and um, it's one oftentimes I, I've, I'm heard, I, I hear it in films and other stuff used as almost a parody of Christianity. It's so linked to Christianity, and as we said at the beginning of this series, church music, Christian music, is um, some of the most profound uh, art form uh, of any belief system out there, you're not going to find anything like church music and what it's inspired over the centuries from Bach to Beethoven to everything else in between, contemporary music, etc. But a lot of times you hear this one done as almost a parody, you know, um, Brother Where Art Thou, I think it was with uh, um, George Clooney and those, and they're doing it with that heavy southern twang and, and kind of a, you know, throwback, you know, primitive type of mindset. It was actually written by an Englishman who was part of the high church. He was part of an Anglican um, ministry. It's talking about God as a rock. So in part, it's discussing, again, some of the nature or character of God, but it's actually much deeper than that. Um, this concept of God as a rock is found throughout Scripture. We've touched on it briefly, but let's review again. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord. I'll praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson. Um, <laughs> not Alcatraz. Um, this is the original rock right here. His works are great and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The psalmist, David writes in the 18th Psalm, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who's worthy of praise, and I'm saved from my enemies. This was not just a song being written. He was writing this probably while he was sitting in a cave hiding from Saul. There's a series of caves that he resided in for a period of time. So he's literally within a rock. All this imagery he's talking about of refuge, deliverer, fortress, stronghold, place of salvation. He's living it out now in this rock. And he's saying in his, in his words, this is how my God is. I have that kind of, of trust and provision and, and help. Psalm 61, hear my cry, O Lord, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call on you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, a place of safety. For you have been a refuge, a strong tower against the foe. So this whole concept of a rock is something that we find throughout 
the scripture. Jesus uses a variation of this, and we touched on it once, but let's revisit it briefly here. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 27, everyone who hears these words of mine, he's saying, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Um, this imagery of a house being built on rock or sand upon the words of Christ, but it also implies building ourselves around God himself, having some connectivity on that. Their imagery was a little sharper to me recently. If you go to Italy, it's peppered with little towns uh, all over the place. And one of the smallest of these is a place called Dezo di Scalve. And Dezo di Scalve uh, is very picturesque. It has um, the river Dezo runs right through the middle of the town, right directly in the middle. And you'll see rows of houses on either side all connected to one another. That's common in Italy that the houses don't have any space. They're connected one to the other. And if you look closely, you'll see a huge boulder in near the center of the town. And this boulder projects out of the ground, and there is a house built on top of this massive boulder. And there are houses that are on, on either side of it that actually um, built around its contour. And there's an old picture that was drawn from a survey done in 1586 of Scalve. It includes a drawing of the village, and in this drawing, a prominent feature is this giant boulder and these houses connected to it. And so we know that this boulder has been part of this city and, and this town, small town, and these places built around it for over 400 years that it's been part of this. Well, there's this massive dam. This is up north in Italy that was built above the village in um, 1923. But the project had a lot of issues with it. it. It had poor workmanship, it had poor materials, and later in 1923, shortly after it was built, December 1st, um, tragedy happened. The, the center part of it broke apart, and over 1.1 billion gallons of water rushed down the Dezo River uh, into the valley below. It devastated the town. Pictures show afterwards this massive damage to roads, bridges, and the village itself was practically wiped out. There was 356 lives that were lost. What's interesting, though, is that the few houses that remained, was the one that was built on this boulder and the ones on either side that had contoured themselves to the uh, rock itself. I'm not going to show you one of the aftermath, but I'll show you one beforehand or, or recently more. And you can see right there, the rock there in the middle, and you can see these houses on either side and on top. Another picture gives you a little more close-up. Those are the houses that survived. Everything else on either side got washed away. This concept, this idea of building life on a rock or the idea of God being a rock and a place of salvation is integral both in Scripture and to the song we're looking at here today. Now, this song today is interesting. It was written by a guy named Augustus Montagu Toplady, and he was a British guy. His father was a, uh, a British Royal Marine who died in combat, and so he grew up mostly with his mother. And um, uh, according to the legend that later built up around this song, 
Um, Augustus is going through a hiking experience or going to another town when a massive storm breaks out. It's terrifying. We've had some of these storms lately around here, and even with our technology, it's pretty scary stuff. And so he finds a cleft, which is a breaking, broken place inside of a rock, and he's in there and feeling protected. And in that moment, and in the inspiration of that storm, is when he thinks of the words of this song, and he writes out, you know, hide me in the cleft of the rock, rock of ages, and it's almost certainly a false story. Um, and the reason why is because we have the first paragraph, the first verse of this song being written um, in an article that he would have written in 1775, later revised in 1776. All this is happening around the time of the Revolutionary War, but this is in Britain. And um, in this article, he's having a conflict. There was a raging argument at the time between two different camps, what were called Calvinist and Arminius. Now, right there, some of you are ready to drift right off, okay? But these were two key theological positions that had to do with the issue of God's sovereignty and our free will and trying to reconcile. If God is all-powerful, then how do we have any will at all? But we know we have free will. How does that interact with that and then what does this have to do with sin and salvation and grace and forgiveness? And there was an argument going on at that time. There were these two other guys named John and Charles Wesley. They later found Methodism or Methodist church. And um, there was an argument between even though Tope Lady had actually gotten saved in a service held by an associate of the Wesleys, as he got more into his studies and stuff, he began to have a disagreement with them. Um, the disagreement was... Uh, pretty intense. Um, Topletty called Wesley, quote, a tadpole in theology. In other words, you're just a minuscule, you don't even, you're not a big fish, you're just a tadpole. Stay out of the way here. And in turn, Wesley referred to him as uh, some other terms that I won't go into here right now either. So there was this theological dispute that was in place, and it wasn't just with them, it was uh, a lot of the, the British Empire and, and English speaking world was caught up with this conversation at the time, trying to break down what was going on. In this, he writes an article kind of refuting Wesley at one point in time. And at the tail end of this article, written in 75, revised in 76, he says this at the end. He says, yes, if you fall, we sin. Be humbled, but do not despair. Pray afresh to God who is able to raise you up and set you on your feet again. Look to the blood of the covenant and say to the Lord from the depths of your heart, and here for the first time we have these words, say from the, from the depths of your heart, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. And actually, his line at that time was, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Later, it got edited to save from wrath and make me pure. And those differences were going to turn out to be of extreme importance in the process of things here. Um, he has the full lyrics. Let me give you the full lyrics on this. The full lyrics on this are broken down really like this. Um, Christ's blood and death is there as a forgiveness of sin. So by Christ's blood and sacrifice, we have a forgiveness of sin. The second um, verse says we can't repay that debt. And he likened it in his writing to actually the national debt of England at that time that say it'll never get repaid, which kind of sounds a little familiar right now, okay? <laughs> Um, uh, that our national debt's never going to get repaid probably at this point in time. I think it's hit how many trillions of dollars at this point? 
And so we can't repay or achieve grace only by God's hand. And then the third verse is talking about a fountain, which kind of references baptism. And then the fourth one is talking about the future and is talking about facing death. And so here are the words to the song. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood. In other words, when Jesus was lanced with a uh, spear at, at the time of the crucifixion, they wanted to make sure he was dead. And so they lanced him with a spear and blood and water flows, which indicated he was in fact dead. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. That's an interesting phrase. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? In other words, I could be as zealous as I want. I could cry as much as I want to. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Then the third verse, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, the full dependency upon the cross of Christ for our salvation. Naked come to thee for dress. In other words, our, the pastor scripture says our, our righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags. He's not even going that far. He says we're, we're just stark naked here, guys. Helpless, we look to thee for grace. Foul to I to the fountain, in other words, dirty, to the fountain fly for baptism. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And then last verse, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the phraseology he would have used. This is the argument that would have been taking place, but you may not still fully grasp the argument. So let me take this down a little bit further in the line of things. There's a discussion taking place, as I said, between what's called Arminianism and Calvinism. They were named after two people, okay? Calvinism would, in essence, say God is all-powerful. We're focusing on his sovereignty and his all-powerful. We can't even resist his grace. Therefore, it's totally he chooses us. It's he elects us. We're chosen, and we're, we're, we're in his grace. And once we become aware of that through salvation, if you will, then um, we're secure. That, that nothing changes. It's never going to change because God's all-powerful, and nothing can pluck us out of his hand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Arminianism would sit here and say, wait a minute, we have free will. And yes, God's all-powerful, but we have a choice in this issue. And so we, by, the, by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we become aware of our sin, and then we can decide to reject or accept. And we know in places in Scripture where people fall away from faith, and, and that happens. So we have some responsibility in this. Now, the danger of these two sides is this. In Calvinism, I can sit here and say, well, I'm saved. Both sides would say we're saved. It's, it's what happens afterwards. And this is important because this is where the church has lost it oftentimes. I, I come to Christ and I'm saved. So now I get to do whatever I want to do because I'm saved. And, and God's all-powerful and I'm in grace and, and I'm not going to get caught up with little details like, like Ten Commandments and junk like that. I mean, I don't kill anybody and, and I try to not, I mean, I don't lie. I mean, not a lot, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and sex, I, I don't do horrible things with sex. I just, you know, it's who I love that I, I mean, and my decision, all those things can be in this area and that can be a problem. It's, some people refer to it sometimes as eternal security. I'm totally secure in Christ. Therefore, what I do doesn't matter. This other equation over here in Arminianism says, wait a minute, what I do really matters. 
And, and I'm striving towards holiness because God is holy. In fact, the original movement of Wesley and others was called the holiness movement. And so I become really focused. I can become purified from sin now here by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I am now going to focus on my sin. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going I'm to overcome it. What I do really, really matters. And then what happens with this can either end up to a degree of an arrogance. I, I am above sin. I'm certainly much better than you are. In fact, that's where the term holier than, thou. Oh, holiness, I'm, I'm holier, and, but my focus is wrong. All I have to do is be holier than thou. That's not the comparison. It's holy to a holy God. We never line up with that. And so from this can come an arrogance, but also an insecurity. If this is eternal security, this can be eternal insecurity. I never know if I'm really close enough or finalize things or what did I stumble and fall? What about this and this and this? And so in this camp, uh, growing up, we were concerned about the rapture happening because uh, whenever it happened, you know, we'd walk in the house and someone wasn't there. I walked in the house twice coming home from school. Nobody's there that was supposed to be there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, and I saw my sister, but that didn't help. I knew she wasn't going either. So <laughs> And so you're like, and so the end result is we got saved every Sunday, <laughs> every Sunday. The beauty of this, though, is that you have a passionate heart for God's holiness and, and an awareness that we're not just saved, but that what we do really matters. The beauty of this is that um, I'm secure in my salvation. I know God's grace and love for me. And there's a, a solidness with that, but it can also mean that what I do doesn't matter, ultimately. That's not how a true Calvinist views it, but this is how it ends up being worked out. A type of neurotic behavior or a type of dismissiveness. And so Toplady is trying to address some of these things because um, Wesley's would have been of the Arminian camp for the most part and really founded the whole holiness movement. And he was in this other camp. And so the, the conversation was, yes, we have two real problems. We have the wrath of God. How do we deal with that? And we deal with that through the cross of Christ. Galatians chapter 3.13, I won't put this up there, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so Christ's death on the cross rescues us from the wrath. We're, we're saved by that. Um, 1 Peter, I will put this up for you now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, the the, you have been healed. It talks about shepherd going astray, but now you've been brought back to the shepherd. Sheep, rather. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who um, through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may um, serve the living God? And so now we're talking about consciousness and not having to be overwhelmed with guilt all the time, which these guys would kind of go into that a bit now. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Both camps would say that. We should no longer be slaves to sin, but this would be kind of a resting point. This would be a little bit more active in that. Romans 6.14, and the question is, can we no longer sin at all, or can we overcome sin? And the answer is we can overcome sin. I think we all know we still sin, but we have the ability to overcome it or turn back to Christ for grace in that. Romans 6.14, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so we operate now under grace. There are issues with both of these, and one, you know, when asked where would we stand as a church on this, we basically would say yes. <laughs> both. 
I think a matter of perspective. From God's perspective, he's outside of time, so he sees everything going into place, and he is all-powerful. From our perspective, though, it's an issue of what we do because we're in time, and we still have choices and decisions to make. And so I would argue that, that we should um, act like an Arminian and think somewhat degrees of Calvinist in the sense of think of, of grace, not get caught up with neurotic hand-washing, but also not for a moment to think that what we do, how we act, what we think doesn't matter. It absolutely, powerfully, overwhelmingly does matter. When he's addressing the idea of, of a, a double cure, this one line particularly that he has, um, and it's interesting how it changes from his original to how it's being even sung here today oftentimes. Today, it's being sung, save this double cure. What's the double cure? Well, the first part is we need to be saved from wrath. Okay, so salvation in grace, that, that, that cures us of, of, of the sin and the threat that we're in. The second part then is what do we do though and how does sin work after that? And so his original um, statement was, cleanse me from its guilt but also from its power. It shouldn't have power over me. If you're really living this out right and, and not getting caught up with the shallowness of it, it shouldn't have power over me. Over here it says, save from wrath. Yep, we both agree on that. But it makes me pure. I'm now able to be pure in this world. And they would say no. Toplady would say no, not until you're in heaven. We work towards that point. And it's the process of what's called sanctification. Now, I've thrown enough theology at you today to have your eyes glaze over twice at least. And I've watched some of you drifting away, okay? Um, sanctification just means that once we're saved, something happens and there's a continuous process. For those of you that have been married <laughs> or are married, I think you know that you have marriage and then you have your life after that. <laughs> And your life changes. You change. Now, sometimes it's because of that person. Sometimes it's in opposition to that person, whatever. But marriage does change you as you go along, as you're in that relationship. And it's the same way when we are married to Christ, and he uses us as a symbol, as a bride. As we marry Christ, as we come into salvation, it just doesn't stop there. And this is, again, where I'm saying the church is getting messed up on this in the world. We just stop here. We still have all our, our worldly desires and tendencies and positions and views from politics to sex to everything else. And none of it's changed. That is not the purpose. We're to be saved, yes, and, and, and redeemed and by grace. But now God wants us to shape towards a kingdom perspective. So that means how do I engage in politics? Oh, I throw a Molotov cocktails and bombs with the rest of them. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of the kingdom. It's just not. I don't know how many times I'm reading of these Christian um, artists and sports people and everything else who are Christians, and, and in the same line, they say, oh, they're living with their, 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 their spouse, or their, uh, not spouses, they're living with their girlfriends, or they're having children by them, and there's no question, there's no, like, there's no problem with that or a struggle with that. No, I'm, I'm saved, I'm okay. No, there's a way that Christ is saying we should now live. Well, my language is my language. I was just raised up to drop F-bombs left and right. That's the way you show you're a real man. Nowadays, a real woman. <laughs> and I get it. I mean, I can see Jesus just dropping those F-bombs on his disciples left and right. He's so ticked off at them. <laughs> Peter, you... Why didn't you get it right this time? We can't see that. because Well, that's Jesus, though. He's holy. Yes, he is. And so are we supposed to be. Not to some neurotic way, but not to some dismissive fashion. 
We make excuses for ourselves all the time. And God's grace is there, but it's not to be taken advantage of. And so this whole idea that there are two issues to be addressed, this double cure that he talks about, let me quickly try and get this to you. The Passover, okay, we had communion last week. And communion, we know uh, Christ's sacrifice of his body and, and blood is actually from the Passover. It was a Passover meal, turn to that. The Passover was when they're coming out of Egypt and um, a lamb has to be killed and the blood spread over the doorpost of the house and, and when the angel of death sees that, blood from, an, an un, from, a, from a sacrificial lamb, an unblemished lamb, he passes over. Death doesn't come. And so they celebrate this. Well, that was all to point towards Jesus. He's the lamb. And so that's what he does at communion. He says, this Passover meal, it's me. I'm the lamb. And we get that. We all say, yes, oh, we love that. We're saved, the blood of the lamb, and we're saved, and we're good to go, and all the rest. But here's the thing. The Jews, right after the Passover meal, right after the Passover celebration, it's followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And for you non-baker types, which I qualify fully on, leaven is a type of yeast. It's a thing that will enter the bread and make it rise or change. It transforms it. Here's what they would do, is they were to clean out all the yeast, all the leaven in their household for seven days. They are to scrupulously get rid of every bit of yeast. And it wasn't about the yeast. The yeast was a symbolism for their sin. And they were supposed to, for those seven days, it was a reminder that the Lord didn't just redeem them through the Passover, but he calls them to an entirely new life of holiness. Again, not in some neurotic fashion. You know house cleaners that can be really nutty. You know? Yeah. Okay, i got to be careful I don't get too personal here. Um, th- th- there are people that just, they won't tolerate anything, okay? And, and that's, again, eh. But we had this woman one time years ago who attended the church for a long time. This is way, way past. And um, great woman, kind, would occasionally make food for the staff occasionally. She was a wonderful cook. And uh, um, then she started to slowly degenerate, and her family was not watching over her. She lived alone. We tried several times to get the family involved, and they didn't care. We we're, were trying to care for her a bit. And, and then one time we noticed this dish she dropped off. Oh, thank you, Julie. It was great. And take a look at it. And I, 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 I know some of you are going to eat in a little bit, so just try to just handle this part. But so we're opening up whatever it is. I can't remember if it was a casserole or a cobbler or whatever it was. And there was a layer of dog hair. I mean, across it. I opened it. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. I'd gone into her house several occasions, and she had two or three big dogs, and the place smelled so badly, they were clearly just using any room that they wanted to as a toilet. There was dog hair everywhere, and it was an unhealthy scene. And again, we tried to get intervention for her. Now, I, I think that a place should be cleaned. That place should have been not only cleaned, it probably should have been, been like bombed, okay, uh, and, and burned to the ground and start over. But we don't have to get crazy on the point, but you obviously want to have things clean. This is the whole idea of what's being brought into in, um, in what he's addressing in the song and what, what God's talking to us about this double cure and about transformation, about change. There's to be something of the yeast of our lives, not in some neurotic fashion, hand-wringing, and then when we think we've achieved it, arrogance, but not in a way that it doesn't matter and that we care about this, that what happens in our lives matter. 
We've been set free from the penalty of sin. That's the first cure of what Toplady is saying in his song, this double cure. We've been set free from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. But we still need to be set free from the power of sin. And that's what this other part is about. The cleft of rock that he's talking about goes right back to Exodus chapter 33, 2. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock, cover you with my tan till I've passed. Um, Moses has an experience with God, but now he wants to know God. It goes deeper than just forgiveness and cleansing of sin. It goes to a relationship with him and says, I want to see you. And God says, you can't handle it, Moses. No human being can handle it. I am so holy that if I just show it face to face, you'll be burned to a cinder. You will vaporize. My holiness will destroy you. I'll tell you what, you hide in this little cleft of rock, in this little section of rock, and you just watch through the opening, and I'm going to pass, I'm going to let you see some of the, the lesser parts, some of the parts you can handle. Not my full glory, but part of it. And that's what's being talked about in here, and that's in part what's being talked about in the song, about having not just salvation, not just sanctification or transformation from sin, but also an ongoing relationship with God, an ongoing connectivity with Him. This whole imagery of the rock and everything being added in, there's, there's a final image I want to try to give you today before we conclude today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's talking about the eternalness. Isaiah 26, verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. The rock eternal. Now this next one, they're not going to have up there because it's, it's, a, it's a newer translation but this is out of the Tree of Life translation or version, and it's a new one produced by Messianic Jews. That's not Messy Jews. Those are Jewish people who have come to know the Messiah. And so they're Jewish people who basically accept Christ as the Messiah. And, and, but they're rooted in Jewish thought and history and culture and by some Christian scholars. And so this, this um, version highlights some of the, the rich Hebrew roots and, and original cultural context. And so Isaiah 26, 4 that we just read, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord himself is the rock eternal. It translates this way. You keep in perfect peace one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I didn't read that. This is actually verse 3. You keep in perfect peace one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. No neurotic hand-wringing. Um, no chasing of the world and justifying ourselves. You keep in perfect peace one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then here's verse 4. Trust in Adonai. Trust in God forever. For the Lord Adonai is a rock of ages. In other words, there's an eternal aspect. He's not just a 400-year-old boulder in some small town in, 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 uh, um, in, in Italy somewhere. He's a rock that lasts and is solid and can be dependent upon and doesn't change. In the same time that this thing was being written in 1776, there was a little discussion we were having over here with the British. You remember that one? Okay. We called it the Revolutionary War. And it went on for quite some time. Um, some of you might remember of your history that we didn't win that by ourselves. In fact, a large reason as to why we won that is because Britain got distracted by France attacking them and helping us out. And at one point in time, Spain jumped in too. And as part of the overall conflict, there was this one section that used to belong to Spain. But back in the, the early 1700s, in, in 1713, really before that, there had been a fight over there with the British 
And in order to get the British out, they had to agree by treaty, signed in 1713, to give them this section of Spain. And it was to be given to them forever. It was to always belong to Britain. Well, Spain later thought that wasn't a good idea. And so when the French are jumping in on them over the Revolutionary War, the Spain jump in too with the main idea that they want to get this section of land back, this very important strategic piece of property, small piece of property, but strategically important. And so the great siege of Gibraltar took place. Yes, the place was called Gibraltar. And it sits at the, at the mouth of the Mediterranean and the Atlantic Ocean. And um, they do this, this, this siege that lasts for over three and a half years. It's the longest siege of the British military in all their history that they've had. For three and a half years, the French and the Spanish tried to break into this little section of land. They couldn't pull it off. In fact, the treaty that was being signed to resolve our Revolutionary War, a Treaty of Paris, they, couldn't, they were waiting to resolve what was going to happen in Gibraltar before they would sign that. And when they realized they weren't going to break in, that's when they finally signed it. But this little section of land, this little piece of property that has not fallen in hundreds of years, it's seen the Phoenicians, it's seen the Romans, it's seen the British. It lasted through World War I and II. In fact, there's been a saying, in fact, about this place there, a little se section of Gibraltar that you may have heard in an insurance com commercial. This insurance commercial was trying to say that they were so solid that they were like the rock of Gibraltar. And if you'll put that picture up there, that is what they're talking about. Gibraltar is a little bit larger than that, but the rock that's right there with the Mediterranean on this side and the Atlantic on the other side, this fortress that's honeycombed with tunnels and, and weaponry and everything else that's never fallen and all these hundreds of years never fell. That's that solid, that rock of Gibraltar. In fact, there's a saying that um, they have from the Gibraltar Regiment, and Gibraltar itself is, is I'm not going to say the Latin for you, but it basically says, no enemy shall expel us. No enemy shall expel us. This is how solid we are. This is how stable this is. This is what this song in part is talking about. Yes, it's about grace. It's about forgiveness. It's about how we handle sin and what it means for us. But ultimately, it's talking about God as a place that is so solid. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I'm helpless to anything else but that. Not the labor of my hands. There's no zeal. I, I can be as zealous as I want to. I can have my tears flow forever, but it's, it's your grace and your decision for this. Cleft for me, rock of ages. Let me hide myself in thee. The water and the blood from your wounded side flows. And then finally this. Toplady died in 1778, two years after writing this, of tuberculosis. He was 38 years old. And I can imagine in his final time even thinking and singing this, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. <coughs> Let me hide myself in thee. It's ironic that a song that was so rooted in um, somewhat of an angry discourse has come over the time to have such comfort and such encouragement. And it's one that's particularly rich and deep in theology. What we do does matter. 
We're not to be caught up with the neurotic hand-wringing. But we need to be in a relationship with God to recognize that we're rooted in a rock, that we have a security and a safety, but all the more a responsibility in that. That's the history. That's the background. Now, Ruth Buchanan has actually taken um, the original lyrics that Top Lady uh, wrote before they were, Top Lady wrote before they were um, redone and reworked. And so today, as we close this series and close this service, Rock of Ages. Rock.
so sure that uh, Augustus and John and Charles Wesley were all that far apart. You see, that line actually of Rock of Ages cleft me and the, the blood and water flow, that was actually something that Charles Wesley wrote that Augustus took and integrated into what he was doing. We can argue theology left and right, and it does matter. It matters. I would say, though, simply this. Don't get caught up with guilt and, and, and neurotic hand-washing or the arrogance that comes from thinking you're holier than thou or anybody else. But don't ever get caught with the illusion that what happens after salvation, that what we do with our lives doesn't matter to God. It does. It does. When in doubt, turn back to the Rock of Ages. He's got a little place just for you and me. Thank God. Father, I thank you for your grace and your salvation that we get by your death and sacrifice. Lord, let us continue to ponder what it means that sin no longer controls us, that we have choices that we can make. Give us the strength to make the right ones, Lord, and then even as Toplady said that Wesley would have agreed, when we stumble and make that mistake, let us turn back to you and be re-encouraged and strengthened once again, knowing that you will always be there, greater than any rock of Gibraltar or any other rock out there, that you will always be present and we can always find refuge in you. We commit these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, and the church said. <laughs>